Hope you're still in the same passage there. We're going to be looking today at one of the most universal uh, accepted practices in Christianity, and yet one that is often misunderstood. And uh, two of those misunderstandings I want to hit here in the introduction as we just begin to move that direction. As you can tell, in a little bit we'll be having the, the Lord's Supper together. So this is a, leads right up to what we'll be doing just in a few moments. So, so I trust this will speak to your heart as we go through it. But there's, there's at least two major misunderstandings concerning the Lord's Supper I'd like to touch on. First of all, what does it even mean? Uh, the meaning of the Lord's Supper is often misunderstood. There's four prominent views about the Lord's Supper in Christendom. Uh, one is uh, called transubstantiation, which is held by the Roman Catholic Church which is the idea that the elements that we'll partake of later uh, actually turn into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And so that when, when someone partakes of those elements, they're actually partaking of Christ himself. They're consuming the body and blood, the physical body and blood of Jesus Christ. It's considered a miracle of the Mass and is part of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, one of the real issues with that, a couple of real issues with that is uh, if you're talking to a, to a Roman Catholic about Christ, about salvation, and you say to them, have you ever received Christ, uh, you want to be real careful with that because they're going to say, yes, I receive Christ every time I go to Mass. And they don't understand exactly what you're after if you're talking to them about that. So the big issue, though, with this, this view is that it is considered essential for salvation that without taking the elements on a regular basis, going to the Mass and partaking of the elements, you cannot be saved. It's part of salvation. And so that's very important error, isn't it? And, uh, and one that we have to guard ourselves against. The second view is consubstantiation, which is held by the Lutherans. Uh, this is a view going all the way back to Luther, but uh, it's still, if you read their literature, they're still not quite sure what they mean by it. Uh, it's, it's quite confusing. They don't believe that the elements actually... Uh, turn into the body and blood of Christ, but that the body and blood of Christ is over and in and around the elements. So that when you partake of the elements, you actually do in some way partake of Christ in some physical way. Uh, the third view is a spiritual presence view, and that is the idea held by Calvin and many of the Reformed people that uh, the, uh, the, the physical body of Christ and blood is not in the elements, but his spiritual presence is there. So that when you partake of the elements, you are partaking physically or spiritually of Jesus Christ and uh, in that spiritual sense. But this becomes difficult when you realize that, that we already have Christ. As Christians, he lives in us. His presence is there. There can be no more of him. And so in what sense would partaking of the elements allow us to have more of Christ uh, or more of his, his spiritual presence in us? It, there really is nothing. And there's nothing in Scripture that teaches that. The final view is the memorial view, which is the one we believe Scripture teaches. As a matter of fact, the only place in the New Testament, the epistles that talk about uh, the meaning of the communion is right here in the passages that we're looking at today and next week. And this teaches very clearly what we would call the memorial view. And that is that we're doing, taking part of these elements in remembrance of Christ and what he's done for us and what he will do for us and what he is doing for us. And that's what is called the memorial view, and that's the one taught here, and the one taught uh, consistently in Scripture. So it's kind of surprising in some sense that there's such a, a wide variety of misunderstandings about the elements when I believe the Scriptures are abundantly clear about what it means. Now here's another view, that uh, another misunderstanding that probably is more prominent, and that is a, a low view of the Lord's table. Uh, 
even among those who biblically uh, understand the meaning of the table, understand the meaning of the elements and so forth, uh, unfortunately many do not see it as very important. Uh, it may be in our attempt to stress the fact that the uh, element, this communion service, has nothing to do with salvation. Perhaps we back off a little too far and, uh, and try to make sure that we don't overemphasize the importance of the Lord's Supper, but we can go too far with that very easily. The Lord's Supper, the communion, is not optional in the Christian life. You cannot eliminate it from your spiritual life and not do spiritual harm. It is essential to the spiritual life and the growth of every Christian. The Lord didn't give this to us just as an option. He didn't say, if you feel like it, if you want to do it every once in a while, if you want to come to church once a year and take communion on Christmas Eve, you better do that. He didn't say that. Instead, he tells us that this is a part of and parcel of the Christian life. Uh, a good example of that is parachurch organizations, uh, as far as minimizing it. Para, there's, there's hundreds, even thousands of parachurch organizations in the world today. Most of them have grown up in the, since the 30s and 40s, 1930s and 40s. And many of these organizations do some very fine work. But as, but as a parachurch, they are not the church. And yet if you are involved with the parachurch and primarily involved with that and not involved with the local church, you might go your whole Christian life and never partake of the Lord's Supper. You'll get good Bible study, good memorization. You'll be taught how to tell people about Christ. Uh, you will, you'll get fellowship and prayer. But the Lord's table, that seems to be something of, of not much significance. It really doesn't matter. And so uh, the only way a, a parachurch organization is fulfilling its proper function is that it is connected with the church or emphasizes the church so that they're taking the people that are involved in those ministries and pulling them back into the church and sending them to the church and they're not separate from the church or part of the church. Uh, they're an arm of the church, not a separate entity. But that kind of shows how uh, often it's misunderstood or, or de-emphasized, let's put it that way. Whenever we eliminate what God says is essential, uh, we're going to be out of balance. We're not going to be what God wants us to be. And so let us be very careful that we do not think we're smarter than God or that we can come up with ideas better than his. Uh, the, uh, this really flies in the face of so many people today who are backing away from the organized church. Uh, matter of fact, if, if, it was, if it was a denomination, uh, the, the people that are no longer, who claim to be Christians but no longer go to church would be the fastest growing denomination in the world. There are hundreds of thousands, even millions of people who say, I, I believe in Christ, I read my Bible, I watch a, a Christian program on television or whatever, but I don't go to church. And the reason I don't go to church, and this has become cliche, is I was, uh, mis I was uh, mistreated at church. Uh, the leadership did something to me or this, that, or the other, and, and I, uh, you know, I, just, uh, can't, I just don't go to church anymore because I have been mistreated by the people there. So if we think about that for a moment and plug it into what Paul's going to say here in just a few moments, uh, Paul is not going to say, stop going to church. Paul is going to correct them. He's not going to say, okay, well, you've got all these issues, so you better quit going to church. Instead, he says, change. Let, let these things change you and transform you, and you in turn help transform other people. And that's what he's talking about in our passages today. Well, we're going to start looking at this passage here, and we're going to find the real meaning of the Lord's Supper. We're going to look at uh, its purpose. 
And we're going to, as we do so, I want to break this into three parts. That's what Paul does. He gives us three parts. We're only going to have time this morning for the first two parts, and then we'll finish off the chapter next week. So we start with verse 17, and as we jump into that, let me give you a little context background. Uh, as you know, if you've been coming to church here for the last several months, as I've been preaching through 1 Corinthians for months now, that this church was an absolute mess. Uh, from one chapter after the other, Paul is correcting them for things that they're doing wrong and things that, that uh, they need to be corrected for. And as we come to chapter 11 and going through chapter 14, uh, he's now talking about a particular issue of disorder and, uh, and the, and the uh, disruption and so forth taking place when the church gathers. In the first uh, 16 verses of chapter 11 that we spent a couple of weeks on, we saw there was some kind of disruption involving women in the church. Who were, uh, who were stepping out beyond uh, their role and were taking, usurping authority of the local church leadership. And there was a number of issues there we've been looking at. Beginning with this verse here and going to the end of the chapter, uh, there's going to be a, a disorder and abuse of the Lord's Supper. And he's going to correct that. Then beginning with chapter 12, going through chapter 14, there's a problem with uh, and disorder in the church concerning the uh, spiritual gifts that God has given them. And because of that, these, these spiritual gifts were not being used as they were meant to be used. They were not being used in love, chapter 13. And they were being disruptive and divisive within the body of Christ. And he's going to spend a great deal of time correcting that. So he's looking at all these disruptions. And as we come to chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 17, he opens up with these words. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. I do not praise you. Now notice he opened the chapter, chapter 11, verse 2, with the words, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So he starts the chapter out by saying, I praise you for something. And he praised them because they were holding steadfast theologically to the truths, what he calls traditions here, that he had given them. And so he praises them for that. They don't seem to have a major theological issue or problem in the church except uh, concerning the resurrection he addresses in chapter 15. But when he comes to verse 17, now he reverses his direction, and he says, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. And he ends, chapter, uh, ends verse 22 with these words, in this I will not praise you. And so he has praised them about some things, and now he says, I can't praise you about this. And so what is it that he can't praise them about? Going further in the verse 17, he says, because you, you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. You're coming together as a body of Christ is, is not for good. You're causing more harm than good by coming together week after week. And then he says, uh, if we can jump over for a moment to um, chapter 14, verse 23, just because it kind of fits with this as well. Here's another harm they were causing, 14, 23. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're mad? Uh, their disruption and their disorder in the church, we'll get to this later, but the outside world saw them as crazy. They, they weren't, this wasn't honoring God. This wasn't drawing people to Christ. The people looked at them and said, they're nuts, those people over there. And so that's hardly the, the thing we want to do. We might be nuts, but we don't want people to know it, right? Then we go back to uh, verse, uh, verse 18, 
And we find more, he says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there's divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. And so once again, we have a division in this church, which is one of the big issues going on uh, throughout this uh, whole book, in this whole church. So Paul is speaking in this chapter, uh, not only the, the Lord's Supper proper, but also something else. And that's what I want you to notice here. From verses 17 to 22, he's not talking about the Lord's Supper yet. He begins talking about the Lord's Supper and giving instructions about the, the table, starting with verse 23. And we'll look at some of that this morning. But right now he's talking about the build-up to the Lord's Supper, the prelude to the Lord's Supper, uh, and what they were doing. So what we know from, uh, from the, some from Scripture and also from church history and tradition, we know that in the early church, the church gathered usually in small homes, or in homes, so they didn't gather in larger gatherings like this for the most part. Uh, they gathered in homes, and so that limited the number of people that could be there at these homes, maybe to 20 to 50 people at most. And they, they preceded the service and the Lord's Supper with a potluck. Now some people th have accused us of, us of eating too much here. That uh, every time you get together you eat. I think it's very biblical, right? Remember, remember what Paul said in uh, 1 Corinthians, that he buffets his body? And uh, so, yeah, so it's, it, uh, that's a sick old joke, isn't it? Uh, but if the church gathered or in the in New Testament is always eating. I think we're right in line with that. We seem to eat a lot, and, and that's good. And, and these people were fellowshipping around the tables. They'd come together for a potluck, and they called that historically the love feasts or agape feasts. And they would come together, and they would have a meal together, and at the end of the love feast, they would partake in the Lord's Supper. So that's the backdrop. And so as we go back to these verses and see what's going on, we find that leading up to the Lord's Supper, before they actually take the elements, what was going on in the church? And it wasn't very pretty. Notice a number of abuses at the love feast. First of all, the divisions. We've seen verse 18. I'll read it again. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. So there's divisions in the church. Cliques were forming. Now there could be a number of reasons for cliques. Uh, one of the problems the early church faced was racial. Uh, the Gentiles and Jews didn't like each other, but they were coming together as one body, and that caused a lot of conflict that the New Testament deals with. Uh, there's also a social economic issues. A lot of, uh, some of the new believers were, were wealthy people. They were masters. Uh, they were aristocrats. But the majority were poor. They were slaves. Uh, they were the poor working class. And they came together as one church. And it would be very easy for the rich people to separate from the poor people. And for the uh, Gentiles to separate from the Jews. But the, uh, but the bigger issue had to go with, with chapter 1 and 3 when he's talking about these these leaders that people were rallying around, remember? Uh, some said, well, I'm from Paul. I'll follow Paul. He's, he's the great intellect. He's the one founded the church. He's our man. And others said, well, give us Peter. Peter, he's a working man. He's got hard, calloused hands. And, and he's not an intellect, but he's, he fits with, with the people. We like Peter. And others said, we love Apollos. He's one of the most eloquent preachers ever. This wonderful voice of his. You know, he just holds an audience like crazy. And they loved him. So you had these divisions wrapped around individuals who were leading in the church. So they had a number of reasons for, for uh, cliques and for divisions in the church. 
And these, uh, unfortunately, haven't gone away. As the majority of you know that before Marsha Marsh and I came here, we were uh, in Peoria area for two years as, as an assistant pastor of the church there. And uh, that is Caterpillar country, most of you know. And uh, back during that era, more than perhaps today, I trust, there was a lot of animosity between management and union. A lot of strikes, sometimes violent strikes, sometimes uh, just, just hard stuff. And uh, that mentality of management and the, and the union carried over into the church. And so the church I was a part of uh, had both, both management and union people there. That's all they had was cat people. And, uh, as, and they could meet each other in the foyers and say hi and be friendly. But uh, when it came to a business meeting or a board meeting, the gloves came off. And there was a great deal of animosity and fighting because the, the uh, union type people that did not respect the management. The management was the elders and pastors of the church. And so there was this, this suspicion that was going on there. And it was a very contentious, ugly situation. I, after two years of being there, I considered seriously about not going on in the ministry. And so it was, it was really a tough, tough time. That happens all over. Uh, you have been involved with that, some of you. you know, you've heard stories of divisions and ugliness uh, among God's people. And so that has not gone away. And Paul knew it was there. Paul addresses it in the scripture. God talks about it. And so we have clear teaching of the word of God how to handle that kind of thing. Paul does not say to them, stay home. Paul says, you fix this issue and you work on those divisions and those problems in the church. Secondly, we have a, the selfishness of this church, another abuse, selfishness, verse 20. Therefore, when you meet together, is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? So selfishness is the next thing. Now, the best we can figure out here is the richer, richer people would come early, and often these churches met at night. Uh, they didn't have Sundays. They didn't have Sundays off, like we do. It was a different, different uh, environment, secular environment. They would come to their services at night, and they would bring with them their food for the potlucks. But the rich people could come early, and they ate up all the good food. Some of you that are veteran potluckers understand that, right? You, you, if you want to get your pie, get it early. That's uh, that's the only application I'll give you on that. But. Uh, now, honestly, the rich people here were, were abusing this uh, privilege. They were eating up the good food, and when the poor people showed up, there was nothing or very little of anything left for them to partake of. They were hungry. And also, apparently, some of them uh, took advantage of the wine and uh, were drinking it up, and some were actually getting drunk prior to the Lord's Supper. Could you imagine that? So when, by the time they got to the Lord's Supper, you had a, a bunch of the richer people who were already, had already picked out they were full and, and maybe probably ready to sleep. You had some of them that were drunk, and you had others that were hungry, and they came together now to partake of the Lord's Supper. So what a mess that had to be, and their selfishness was, was obvious there. So you can imagine the mood when they came to the supper. You know, often when we are ready to hand out the elements of the Lord's Supper, we will say, as the elements are being passed, uh, prepare your heart to receive them. And that kind of goes back to this passage here. These people were partaking of the elements, but they were not prepared spiritually to do so. So Paul is addressing that in no uncertain terms here. And then finally, they were, the, another abuse, the church was being despised. 
In verse 25, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. They were despising the church by humiliating the poor believers that were there who had to be thinking that they were considered inferior. You ever been in a situation, maybe at school or uh, at work or whatever, and uh, where people who consider themselves more sophisticated or cooler than you uh, humiliate you? They look down on you. They say something ugly about you. You come to the table with your food and, and sit down and everybody at the table gets up and leaves. You ever seen something like that? I think we probably all have seen something like that. Maybe experienced it. It would be humiliation. And these people were humiliating. The, the, the more sophisticated people were humiliating the poorer people. And, and in turn they were despising the church of God. So by the time they got around to partaking of the elements... Uh, they were not prepared spiritually whatsoever to partake. They did not stop taking the elements, but they shouldn't have been taking the elements. I'll talk about more of that as we look at the third part next week. But I want to go now to, from the abuses to the teachings, the instructions concerning the Lord's Supper. And we start with verse 23 on that. Uh, and as a reminder, as a big umbrella here, the Lord's Supper reminds us of our justification, it reminds us of our salvation. It all points to that. So that's the big umbrella. But there's five important truths here in the two verses that we'll look at today concerning the Lord's Supper. We're only going to look at verses 23 and 24. There are more to come, but there's five great truths in those two verses that I'd like to point out to you. First of all, what Paul has to say comes from Christ. He says in verse 23, For I receive from the Lord that which I delivered to you. Now, some of these things I'm going to say here are things we skip over real easily and don't see. But here's the point. This giving of the Lord's Supper is not Paul's idea. It was not the church's idea. It was not the apostles' ideas. It was the Lord's idea. He received this from the Lord. Therefore, he is under the authority and the inspiration of the Lord himself. That's extremely important to note for every aspect of the church. There's only one authority one ultimate authority that we have, and that is Jesus Christ and his word. And we turn to that, not to other things. It is his authority there. And, we, and, and a lot of people would give lip service to that, but do they follow it? Some of you know uh, A.W. Criswell, I think it was, the, that, who was the pastor in, in Dallas for many years, a great big church there. He wrote a book I read when I was a young man called Why I Preach the Bible as Literally True. And in that book, he told a story of when he was in seminary that some of him and his buddies went down to a local liberal church to see what they did. And the pastor was preaching that week from Shakespeare. And so afterwards, they went up to him and he said, uh, I thought pastors were supposed to preach from the Bible, and you preached from Shakespeare. And he said, well, I did the Bible last year and got done with it. And so I'm preaching Shakespeare this year. Well, I'd never been around too many people like that before, but you know one of the big fads going on right now is exegete movies. You go to a church and they're playing a movie or showing a movie and they exegete the movie. There's, there's no authority, folks, in movies. There's no authority in books. And now we can get insights from movies. We can get insights from Shakespeare. We can get insights from, from our other readings, but there's no authority there. The authority is in the Word of God and the Word of God alone. And so as we turn to that on all these things, we know that we're, we're getting what God wants 
and what we should do. So we have the authority. Second uh, truth is that Christ loves and forgives. Now here's a line that is so easy to miss. I almost always have missed it, but I want you to note something. He says, I, I, but I, for I receive in the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. Have you ever noticed that line? In the night he was betrayed. Now why did he say it that way? He could have said at the last supper, or at the last Passover, at the first supper, at the time when I gathered with my disciples just before I was crucified, at the night I was, I was betrayed, went into trial, or I went to the trial, at the, day, the day before I was crucified, but he said instead, on the night I was betrayed. And that's a direct point, direct line to who? Judas. Judas betrayed him. Why would Paul say it that way? Why would Jesus tell Paul to say it that way? Well, I think because he's talking here about the heart of Christ. He's looking at the heart of Christ here. The heart of Christ is love. The heart of Christ is forgiveness. And, and as Christ gives us all this, he gives it to us out of the heart of love and forgiveness that only he can give us. On the night Jesus was betrayed, when Judas betrayed him, remember in Matthew chapter 26, verse 50? You remember the first word out of Jesus' mouth? Friend. Friend. This man was betraying him for crucifixion, and he called him friend. Now, Judas never sought forgiveness, but the Lord himself had the heart of forgiveness. And you and I cannot partake of these elements unless we have the heart of forgiveness. It's not always possible, according to Romans 12, for us to be at peace with every person. Sometimes that can't happen. But it says, as far as it depends on you, you'll be at peace with every person. And that, that talks about the heart of forgiveness, even for those that have betrayed us and hurt us in one way or the other. And without that, you have no relationship with people, do you? You know, we've all had fusses with our friends. And if we did not develop a, a forgiveness to that, if we didn't work out a forgiveness of that, then we separate. But forgiveness and love bonds. It doesn't separate. And so we find the example of Christ here being beautiful. Thirdly, the Lord's Supper is a celebration. Notice the word thanks here. And when he had given, them, given thanks, he broke it and said. He gave thanks. That word thanksgiving or thanks is a word that uh, is Eucharist. It means Eucharist, and that's what some people call the Lord's Supper. Warren Wiersbe says a very nice thing here, a very good thing. He said the communion is not supposed to be a time of spiritual autopsy and grief, even though confession of sin is important. It should be a time of thanksgiving and joyful anticipation of seeking the Lord. Jesus gave thanks, even though he was about to suffer and die. Let us give thanks also. I think that's insightful. Uh, there are times as we prepare our hearts for the elements that we need to confess sin. And we need to realize there are some things in our life we need to get right with God or with others. But primarily the Lord's Supper is a thanksgiving. It's a remembrance of what he's done for us. It's a thanking him. It's a gratitude, a heart of gratitude. And that's part of the Lord's Supper. By human nature, we are discontented people, aren't we? And yet thankfulness changes that, and he calls us to be thankful. Now the fourth truth, that in the Lord's Supper, we, we remember his death. Verse 24, he says, and he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance 
of me. You know, many of us, most of us are highly blessed, aren't we? And we thank God when we have those blessings, whether they're physical blessings, financial, family, job, whatever they might be. And we thank the Lord for that. But we need to also remember not only those kind of blessings, but the, the deeper blessings of life, what Christ has done for us. We tend to, to not look at the past. We tend to not look at the future. We tend to look at right now at our lives. And so the, the problem with that is easy to forget what has happened for us in the past. I don't know about you, but I have a great forgetter. I, I forget where my glasses are. I forget where my keys are. I come out of Menards and can't remember where I parked my car. And so I walk around for 20 minutes looking for the car. I, I know a lot of you are probably the same way. But more importantly, I forget people over time. There's people that at one point were very, very important in my life. Uh, here at the church or whatever that, that 30 years ago or 40 years ago that I can't remember their names anymore. Uh, I don't remember our in involvement. I, I forget. You do too. And, as, and a lot of times we forget the order we get. We've got so much more in there, I guess. I don't know. Need, what we need is some kind of flash drive that takes out all the nonsense. Take it out, put it on the side, and leave it right there and use it only if you have to. But we've got a lot to think about. It's easy to forget. Okay. So the Lord gave us his supper to remember. He wants us to remember something. And by doing this on a regular basis, by partaking in the elements on a regular basis, we remember that he died for us. We remember why he came. So memory. And then finally, a final truth, Christ's death was a sacrificial one. Verse 24. He said, I want you, this is my body which is for you. That's so very vital to what we're saying. Christ died for us. He died in our place. He died as our sacrifice. It's not just that he was a great teacher and a great leader and a wonderfully moral man. He was the sacrifice for our sins. And the elements remind us week after week, every time we partake, of that so, so that we never forget that Christ died in our place. Now remember, when the first supper was initiated, it was on the Passover night, right? And the elements were being, or the Passover was being celebrated by the, the apostles and, and Christ in the upper room. And that's very important because you remember what happened at the Passover. It was the last of the ten plagues on Egypt because Egypt would not let Israel go. And the Lord said, I'm going to pass over you tonight, and I'm going to take the firstborn of every family in all the land, and the firstborn of all their livestock, and they're going to die. But if you will sacrifice a lamb, place his blood on the door posts and lintel of your door, then when I pass over, when I come over, I will pass over you. And I will not kill your, your, your children, and I will not take the lives of your firstborn. All you had to do was believe him, obey, sacrifice a lamb, and place it on the door. And if they did that, the Lord passed over them. But an animal was sacrificed for them. That's, we make a straight beeline from the Passover to the Lord's Supper, to what Christ has done. He is our Passover lamb. He is the one who has died in our place. He's the one who shed his blood for us. And without that, we have no hope and no life and no future and no eternity and no heaven. We're lost and we're lost forever. But he died 
for our sins. But just as in the Passover, the majority of the people at that time ignored the warning the Lord gave them. They ignored the instructions. And almost all the Egyptians died. We have to think maybe a few paid attention. And almost all the Jews were rescued, although maybe a few of them also didn't pay attention. But all those who, who by faith believed in the Lord and placed their faith in Him and did what He told them to do, well, they were rescued. And so that offer is now given to us as we take a straight beeline to the cross. The Lord has died in our place. He has taken our sins upon Himself. He is our sacrifice. He is our Passover lamb. But not everybody's saved, are they? Most people are not. What's, what's the difference? At the Passover, that they obeyed, put the blood on the doorpost, then the Lord passed over. What do we do? What does Scripture say about our salvation in Christ? Let me, very quickly, three things. We have to, first of all, recognize that we're a sinner. We are in need of rescue. We're in need of deliverance. We're in need of what Christ came to offer. Secondly, we have to believe that Christ is the Son of God who died for our sins, who died in our place, who took our penalty upon himself. And then finally, by faith alone, we accept the gift that he offers us of salvation and forgiveness of sin, and he's our Savior and our Lord. And so as we think about the meaning of the communion service, that's exactly what it's about. It's about the fact that he has made all provisions necessary that you might know him that you might be rescued and you might be saved. But some of you have not done that. Some of you have listened to this message. You've listened to other messages. You, it, these things just pop right off your head. You don't even think about it perhaps. And yet what if, what if what Jesus gave Paul to tell us is true? What if Almighty God gave us his inspired word to tell us what is true and to tell us how we can know him for all eternity, and can tell us the consequences if we don't. What if that's true? Consider that as we think about that right now. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper after a song or two. And then uh, if, you are, if you know Christ as your Savior, we invite you to join us. If you do not know Christ as your Savior, even now, even as we have this little break between, you can come to Christ by faith alone and ask Him to save you from your sins. Father, we come before you now with thanksgiving. So grateful for what you have provided for us in Christ. What, what we have that we certainly do not deserve. Oh Lord, we give you praise. And Father, as we uh, uh, come closer to the end of our service and partake of the Lord's Supper in just a few moments, we want to do this in remembrance of you and remembrance of all you've done for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.